inside joke. All right. <laughs> All right, let's get started. So open your Bibles. Proverbs chapter 6 is where we're going to go first. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse, verse 9 is where we're, where we're, we're going to start. I'm going to go over a review real quick first before we start reading, but you can turn your Bibles there. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 9. Okay, so last week, what we went over was the necessity of using your time well. We talked about what wastes time, and we talked about what redeems time. And we went over essentially that the number one most important thing and the reason why you exist is to bring glory to God's kingdom. You don't exist for anything else. And the more time you give to any work or effort that contributes to more people coming to repentance, the more lost time is redeemed and the more effective your time will be. And so we went over a little bit about the multiplying effect of discipleship in that if you make a disciple, let's say you bring somebody repentance, you lead them to Jesus, and then you walk them through the basics or connect them with other people who walk them through the basics, and they become a disciple-making individual. Now they are doing work that you couldn't, but the Bible says that every man is rewarded according to his own labor, and he says the sower is one and one who waters is another. So when you sow into someone's discipleship or water someone's discipleship, you're rewarded according to that labor because you're actually rewarded for what they do, not just what you did. And so that is the multiplying effect of discipleship in the sense that there is an effectiveness that's added to your life through discipleship. So the more time you give to people coming to repentance and being discipled, the more effective your time is. And it's just like growing up, my dad always told me that you want to be able to make money in your sleep. And that's, that should be a goal as far as a business endeavor. And I've always remembered that, but now I think of that in terms of the gospel. I should be making disciples in my sleep, which basically means that the people that I disciple should be making disciples so that it could be somebody on the other side of the world making disciples because of a seed that I sowed or a seed that I watered, and I actually am being, I'm able to enjoy the fruits of that labor even though I'm not actually there. And so if you want to be effective with your time, man, do that. That's what's going to uh, be going to be most effective. So that's what we went over last week, and then we just talked about how when you so to the flesh or when you do things that waste time or burn time without any kind of purpose in mind, that is actually sowing to the flesh because the only goal of the flesh is to resist the spirit. So anything that you do that acts against the will of the spirit is of the flesh. So therefore, don't do things that are against the will of the spirit. Now, the big question that comes up, which we're going to address this morning is, well, what can you do then? Like, how do you enjoy life? Well, Number one, making disciples is a lot of fun. So there's plenty of fun in that. But we are going to get into, okay, practically speaking, like what should, what, what should you do? What shouldn't you do? Why is this an important consideration? So we're going to get into that today. But to start, Proverbs 6. So before we read, does anyone have any questions or comments about it? It can be something from last week or a question about this review by chance. Otherwise, we'll just get into it. Okay. All right. So Proverbs 6. Verse 9 says, How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? 
A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. No, real quick. This includes, of course, literal sleep, but it is not limited just to literal sleep. Because when he's saying, when will you rise from your sleep? You obviously have to be awake to read that. So this, this isn't, isn't just about literal sleeping. It includes that. This is about a frame of mind. It's about an attitude. To be slothful, lazy, or sleepy in one's work or in one's life is the general meaning of this. But of course, it applies to literal sleepiness as well. And here's the attitude he's talking about. Saying sleep just a little bit more, slumble just slumber just a little bit more. And the folding of the hands to sleep is talking about taking rest, essentially, when you shouldn't be. So what this is about is when you have an attitude in which you're always chasing after a little bit more time to rest or just a little bit more time to sleep or a little bit more time to relax when you already have what you need in that area, that continues to progress. And it leads to, and this gets into a proverb that is in Chapter 19, which I'm just going to read you guys real quick. Verse 15, 19 verse 15 in Proverbs says, Laziness casts one into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. So when, in other words, when a person gets sleepy or slothful or lazy in general, which is, that was a very powerful sneeze. That was very impressive. Very impressive. <laughs> I'm awake. <laughs> hey, you cast out a demon with that sneeze. That was incredible. Okay. All right. So, um, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> Here we go. Okay, Proverbs 19.15. Laziness, sleepiness, slothfulness casts you into a deep sleep. So, in other words, if you start to get a lazy attitude or laziness in your habits or in your work, it actually deepens that sleepiness and leads to what eventually becomes complete indolence, which is complete inactivity where you're not accomplishing anything whatsoever. And you, you guys have probably all heard it said, sleepiness, sleep breeds sleepiness. You can be really tired because you only got a little bit of sleep, or if you get more sleep than you need, it makes you even more sleepy. And the same thing goes for your attitude, your lifestyle. The, the lazier you get in your work, the lazier you get in your work. <laughs> and then eventually you don't accomplish anything at all. And so in order to be successful, this is for life in general, but especially for discipleship, because that's, that's why we exist, to bring glory to God's kingdom. We cannot condone or tolerate a slothfulness in that work. The Bible says that the soul of the lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. That is, I think it's Proverbs 13.4, I believe, says that. It might be 15.4. You guys can Google it. Regardless, when you have a desire to do something, but then you have nothing from that desire, Proverbs identifies that as laziness. So having the intent to, to do something and never actually doing it is laziness. 13.4, that's what it is. Thank you for putting that up. Proverbs 13.4. So what... The one characteristic of a lazy man is to desire and have nothing. So you have the want, but there's no action. 
to be a hearer of the word and not a doer, right? For the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. Diligence is about persisting in your work. Timothy says, give yourself entirely to it, and then your progress will, will be evident to all, and then you'll succeed rich in what would be the fruits and rewards of your labor. So, we can just start with a simple principle, which is that if you have desire and there is no fruit, that's laziness. So repent of that, right? Pray for God to help you in that area and choose diligence instead. And that's why Proverbs 6, 6 is trying to tell us to wake up. How long are we going to slumber? How long are we going to sleep? And practically speaking, if we're talking about literal sleep, just to kind of wrap up this initial first point, that it is slightly different for every individual. But when it comes to sleep and how long you should be sleeping, just think about what is needed for you to have the energy that you need to be diligent. So whatever amount of, amount of sleep allows you to have the energy to be diligent, get that amount of sleep. Anything above or below that, which would obviously inhibit your diligence, is too much or too little. This is a really basic way of thinking about it. And anytime you've gotten what you need, and then you say, well, just a little bit more. I'll push the snooze button just three more times. That just continues to progress. That adds to the problem. It doesn't solve the problem. <laughs> We've all done that. We've all done that. There's nothing wrong with just pushing the snooze button one or two times. It's no big deal. The point is, if you continue in a habit of it, it just gets worse over time and it breeds laziness. And so we do the same thing when it comes to the most important work in our lives, which is really making disciples in the sense that, uh, I mean, as far as evangelism goes as an example, when you say, man, I really should call this person or I really should talk to this person. Well, somebody else will do it. That's like pushing the snooze button on God's work, right? So if you keep doing that, eventually it just creates more laziness. And then it casts you into a deep sleep. And where this gets interesting is what Jesus talked about in Matthew 25 with the parable of the wise and foolish virgins where they're waiting at this gate for the wedding processions to begin. Five of them are wise, five of them are foolish. The wise ones brought their lamps burning with extra oil. The five that were foolish did not bring extra oil. It says they all slumbered and slept. Then they heard the noise, the procession, processions are beginning, they all wake up, and the five that had extra oil were welcomed in. The five that did not, did not have enough to finish the procession. Therefore, the gate was shut behind them, or the door was shut behind them, excuse me, and they could not enter. And Jesus said he did not know them. The difference between the two, uh, two categories there, is you have the people that were prepared and the people that were not. And we're actually told in both in Jesus' words and in Paul's words in Thessalonians that sleepiness is characteristic of night, alertness and focus is characteristic of the day. Being prepared is about walking in the light. It means always being watchful, always being vigilant, not getting lazy, but staying focused on, on what God has you doing. The laziness of attitude is the unpreparedness. And the Bible says if we are not watchful, Jesus said this, if we are not watching, then the day of the Lord will come upon us as a thief in the night. And this is this can be for, you know, quote unquote believers or unbelievers. In order for faith to be maintained, we have to stay watchful. Jesus said those who endure to the end will be saved. 
If your faith endures through all things, so will your salvation. But if you give up on faith at any point, you also give up on salvation. And salvation is something that you continue to sow into. You continue to, to be sanctified. You continue to increase and grow in faith and your faith is strengthened. But if you give up on the process of strengthening that faith, that puts you in danger. It leads to hardening your heart, which we're going to get into in a moment here. And it leads to a greater risk of you forfeiting that faith. And so there's a proverb in chapter 18. Go to Proverbs chapter 18, verse 9. I love this verse. One of my favorites in Proverbs. Very convicting. So don't get offended by it. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 18, verse 9 says, he who is slothful in his work is a brother to him who is a great destroyer. Who is the destroyer? Satan. The Bible actually refers to the devil as the destroyer. Yeah. He calls, here he calls him a great destroyer, right? To be slothful is to be a companion of the devil. Right. Correct. Correct. Well, any work. Yeah, it's it's be a different category. In other words, to be slothful in your work is to be agreeing with what leads to the destruction of, let's say, that business, for example. Like you don't help a company by being lazy when you work for them, right? So you're either adding to the growth or decline or destruction. And the difference is difference between the two is diligence and laziness, right? So Sure. Yes. Yeah. I mean Overall, what should drive us to get up in the morning more than anything is Christ, right? But this, this diligence, it should be applied to every arena of life. So whether it's your uh, work as in what you do occupationally and then what you do for the Lord, it's all one thing because the Bible says we're to be diligent in everything that we do. Uh, yeah, that's the microphone we'll pass around. Um, so, yeah. Colossians 3.23, what does it say? Literally what you just said, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to yeah. the Lord and not to men. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Yep, great verse. Colossians 3.23. Even if you just read Colossians 3, it's like the end of it. Yeah, talks about this. Whatever you do, in everything, do it heartily. In everything, use diligence. So um, so I think we just could, could apply this verse, Proverbs 18.9, to everything. To be slothful. In your work is to be a brother to him who is a great destroyer. But specifically when you're speaking to God's work or what God's intent is for your life in making disciples. To be slothful in that work is to be on the devil's team. So we're helping the cause of the enemy by being lazy. So we shouldn't want to be lazy. <laughs> Simple point, right? Be diligent. Keep moving. Make sure we're not, we're not getting into idleness. Be diligent. 
Otherwise, we're a brother to him who is a great destroyer, which is about the enemy, if we're slothful in our work. Okay. Now we're going to talk about the hardness of heart thing I mentioned briefly, but before I get into that, do we have any additional questions or comments about what was said so far? Go for it. Sorry, just one more. Yeah. So, um, is there like the opposite true as well? Like, can you work too much? Yes. <laughs> yes. Are we going to look at what scripture says about that? We will. Yeah, we will. Um, there is there's a point when we busy ourselves because we want to be diligent with things that make us what the Bible calls busy bodies, which essentially means you want to be diligent, but it's misdirected, so you just keep yourself busy with nothing. But then there's another example in Philippians about this uh, individual who is a gospel worker named Epaphroditus, who is a companion of Paul. And Paul said that Epaphroditus, in, with the right intent, the right motive, laid down his life for the church. But the Bible says that he did not consider his own life or his own comfort to the degree that he stopped taking care of himself and it made him really, really sick and he almost died. So you have to know when it, something becomes too much. And the way you know is that if it starts taking away from your health, it takes away from your ability to be diligent, in which case it's too much. So it is good to have rest. And the Bible actually says that the, the rest of the diligent or the sleep of the diligent is sweet. So the more diligent you are, the more rest rejuvenates you. But if you abandon rest entirely, then you also forfeit your own diligence, in which case it will cause your life to uh, end before, before it should, before the time. So, yes, you can overwork yourself, and there's, there still is a place for that. This doesn't mean, you know, it's wrong to rest. It all still has a place. But, yes, you, you can overwork yourself. Yes, over here. Ask the question again. I didn't quite understand the question anyway, so. I say, is the, the uh, scripture about the ant, like, go to the ant, you sluggard, consider her, her ways and be wise, which having no captain oversees a ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gather her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that part of what you're talking about now? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's part of what part of what the Bible's saying. Yeah, do you have a do you have more to add to that? Or yeah, yeah. Um, oh, so look at when you when you when will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. You shall you you, you so shall your poverty come upon you like a prowler, and you and your needs like an armed man. Mm -hmm. If you don't work, if you don't work, because um, the ant was working when it was summertime, mm -hmm. you don't work and, and, and you wait till that time come up on you, you'll, you'll end up uh, like the sluggard and you end up like with nothing. Yeah, you end up in poverty. Yeah, yeah. poverty. Yeah. Yep. So think about this as far as poverty of the soul, right? This isn't just poverty, literally speaking, that's of course included. 
But the Bible says, if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you will reap bountifully. So if you're diligent in your work, it will result in great fruit from that work, great reward from that labor. But if you're sparing or lazy in the work that you're doing, you'll have little fruit. So if we're talking about God's work, if you sow to the spirit sparingly, so like the Bible says, if you sow to the spirit, you reap everlasting life. If you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. If you sow sparingly to the spirit, you're going to reap very little fruit of everlasting life in your, in your life. But if you sow bountifully to the flesh, which human beings are very good at, you reap corruption bountifully, right? So if you just give just a little bit or the bare minimum of what is needed to call yourself Christian to the spirit, you're going to have a pretty lousy harvest. It's not going to produce a lot of change or transformation in your life. But if you give bountifully to it, in other words, you focus on that. You give yourself entirely to it. Like first Timothy four says, the harvest is bountiful. And so overall, uh, for example, if we go back to addressing what Amy's point was about overworking yourself, just think about it in terms of rather than viewing God's work as a category or a certain allotment of time where you say this hour from 7 to 8 a.m. on Saturday mornings is my Jesus time, right? And that's the time I give to God. Everything else is for me. Is that sowing bountifully to the Spirit? No. The perspective change is this, which is that all of my time is for God's kingdom and glory. All of it. There might be a certain allotment of time that I focus on, let's say, reading or studying Scripture, but if all of my time is ultimately for the spirit, then I need to see my work, even my play, my hobbies, my recreation, all of that I see as an opportunity to glorify God's kingdom. So that's why the Bible said, Bible says, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and glorify God in everything you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God, right? So you have to ask yourself this question. And if you, if if you get this right, you're never going to overwork yourself because this actually adds to your ability to stay diligent and to have good rest. Doing all to the glory of God, what does that look like? Doing all to God's glory means how can I use what I am doing now to bring glory or attention or praise to God's kingdom, right? So Jesus said, your good works cause other people to glorify God, glorify your Father in heaven. Peter said that by doing good, the Gentiles will glorify God in the day of visitation. So how can I do good in what I'm doing that will cause attention to be brought to God? That's what it means to do all to God's glory. So you can go and take rest. You can, let's say, take a weekend and you go to your cabin or you play some sports with some friends. You're doing something that most would not consider God's work. But your perspective is, no, everything is for his glory. Everything's God's work. All of my time is God's work. So I'm going to go play sports with some friends. Who am I going to meet? Who's going to be there? What can I say? What kind of example can I set? How can I bring more glory to God in this recreational time? Right? So it's really not about setting aside time and saying, this is God's time. And then there's everything else that God is not so pleased with. It's all of this is for God. So what you're, what you're diligent in is bringing glory to God in whatever you're doing. 
That's diligence in the Lord's work. If you do that, there's going to be productivity spiritually in everything that you're doing. And if that is your attitude, then you're never, you're never really going to overwork yourself because that means when you're resting, it's to God's glory. When you're exercising, it's to God's glory. When you're out with friends, it's to God's glory. When you're preaching the gospel, it's to God's glory. When you're studying your Bible, it's to God's glory. It doesn't really matter, you know? So the point is like whether what you're doing contributes to God's kingdom, not whether you've set aside enough time for God's kingdom because all your time is for his kingdom. And that's the way you got to think about it. Does that make sense to everyone? Any questions or comments about that? No? Okay. All right. Um, okay. Hebrew, let's go to Hebrews chapter 3. And we're going to read starting in verse 12. So what we're going to get into next, this is where it gets a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Wait for the microphone. About what you were just talking about? Sure. So here on earth, there's really only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God, and then there's the, let's just call it the kingdom of earth. Mm-hmm. And we're supposed to pick which one we're going to be in. Mm-hmm. Although we work, we do our jobs in the world, that doesn't mean we leave the kingdom of God. Right? Right. Everything, we're just... Aren't we supposed to, it says, like, I'm kind of setting this out right now, and there's like 90 references in the, in the Word, both in the Old and the New Testament, that talks about the kingdom of God. That's the goal. The goal is to be in the kingdom of God, not in the kingdom of the earth. Right. So I'm, is it, it's not even a choice. Right. How can we bounce back and forth? Yeah, if you make it a choice, you're not well, seeing the point. Yeah. If we're all here, we've made the choice for the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so everybody that we meet and everything we do and everywhere we go and every how we conduct ourselves should be, in essence, in line with the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. can't jump back and forth. Doesn't it say don't jump back and forth between the two kingdoms? Because mm-hmm. Don't waver. Don't, don't waver. be double-minded. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I just wanted to make that comment. Sure, yeah, appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's real simple. Like Philippians says, chapter 3, you're a citizen of heaven. And you're never not a citizen of heaven. So you can live like heaven and everything you're doing. Otherwise, the way that most, unfortunately, most professing Christians think about it is you can turn your light on when you're in the light, which means when you're around other people that have their light on, then you can have yours on. But then when you're around people that are in darkness, you don't switch it on because you don't want to be a sore thumb. You don't want to stand out or you don't want to ruffle anyone's feathers. And you try to be of heaven when you're around people who are of heaven, but then of earth when you're around people who are of earth. But we're supposed to always be of heaven, right? Wherever you are. So there isn't really supposed to be a on and off switch for Jesus. It's just always on. Yeah. It's not so much what you're doing, it's why you're doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And to RJ's point, I mean, he said, if ever, everyone here has chosen the kingdom of heaven, maybe. But there could be people who are here out of guilt or duty or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so why are you here? And then that determines if we're living mm-hmm. in, in the kingdom of heaven versus mm-hmm. the kingdom of earth. 
Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Everything we do has a why behind it. And that's, I mean, man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. The heart is the why. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm still wondering, I'm just going to use hockey as, as an example. Because a lot sure. of us go, but like, so I don't think of, I'm not, yeah. Like I'm thinking overall, like part, I'm part of the kingdom. So whatever I do, you know, lifestyle Christianity. So when I go play hockey, I'm not like, I'm not gonna like get in a fight or something like because out of my character or something because because mm-hmm. RJ, RJ checks me all the time. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like I'm not going. I like to play, and I'm gonna try my best while I'm playing. Mm-hmm. Like, but I'm not thinking like, how can I glorify God in this? Like, other than trying my best like sure. i don't know yeah well i'll give you i'll give you an <laughs> I'm example not thinking about that like as i'm playing yeah yeah personally so to Pete's point about your why your motive so the way i think about it like if we're talking about hockey i know that doing that contributes to me being a healthier person physically and i need to be a healthy person physically in order to continue god's work in my life on this earth so therefore i know that and do it for that reason therefore it's glorifying to his kingdom that's the way I think about it personally. But then also, yeah, when you're playing hockey, you're not, you don't want to be uncharacteristic of that kingdom by getting into a fight and you know what I mean? So it's like, it's basic stuff like that. You know, I wouldn't overcomplicate it. Yeah. I was just going to say like my dad and I, uh, we go to after, like we did, he did this a couple times. I did it once with him, but like the Zamboni dude to just go up to him and say, Hey, do you need prayer for anything? And that too. Pray for him. That too. And then at other times, like my dad's like, and I try to. No one comes when I invite them. When my dad invites people, they come, <laughs> and they're not all the time believers, and they're not a part of this community. But we all just share in the presence of them what we've been studying while we're taking off our pads and stuff. So that's a perfect way. Mm-hmm. Everything we do. Yep. You got to think creatively. How can you bring more of Christ into what you're doing? And if you think that way, God will give you ideas and make it better. Yeah. Um, First of all, I'm not very good at hockey, so I'm looking at my feet, and that turns into a check. <laughs> yeah, I know. But, you know, I would say one of the things when, when we are playing hockey, uh, before um, I made a choice that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, when I played sports, I was always very aggressive, actually not thinking the well-being of the person on the other side of whatever it was, mm-hmm. right? But when we're playing now, there's no way in the world I'd want to bring harm to anybody that I'm with. Mm-hmm. I want to see them do better than me, mm-hmm. which is pretty simple for everybody to do better than me. But Yeah, see, these are all just like simple examples of an attitude change that does glorify God in whatever you're doing. You know? So we're not saying like every time you go and do something fun, you have to be like consciously like, it's not like you have to pray in tongues the whole time you're playing hockey, you know, it's just, it's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we don't, yeah, don't overcomplicate any of this, you know. It's just think about, just think this way. In what I'm doing, can I do this in a way that glorifies God? If I can't and it's an obvious no, then don't do it. But if it's a yes, then do it and enjoy it. I I think I've said this before, but I just wanted to jump on what, Amy, you were saying about um, an attitude and and people watching you and observing you and how you, the life, I think you used the, phrase um lifestyle christianity i mean that is it 
Because people, I find that people, when you least think people are watching you is when they're watching you the most. And um, so how you carry yourself, how you respond. I think about it working in a secular job, right? I mean, people are always watching how I carry myself and, you know, are my calm in a moment of anxiety for other people. And I just think that that is like how you live your life because you have Christ in you is one of the biggest testaments that you can do because you can say all the words you want, but if you don't also live that, then people don't really care what right. you say. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Your confession alongside your conduct. Those two together. Yeah. I was, oh yeah. I was just thinking the same thing. I was playing pickleball, and it's like a skills development thing, and so it's beginner, and different people come in. And a woman came in, and she was terrible. You know, she just couldn't do No, she was. <laughs> no, I'm just yeah. being honest. Yeah. I mean, we all are kind of. We're well, we all we're, got some. None of us that. are great as beginners, but she was terrible. And I wasn't thinking of how to, you know, make her feel better, but just things came out when she did something well. It's. God in me that just came out. So it's she came up afterwards and she said, you just encouraged me. You made me feel so comfortable here. And I was like, what did I do? You know, I had to think. So I think, like you said, it's when we submit ourselves to the Lord, then he comes through us and it's that love that draws people near. So even playing, I wasn't, I didn't come in there specifically thinking about that, but that's what happened. So... Yeah, and so I praise God because I had to think about well, what, what did I do? I don't really know, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when you get those opportunities, like when your conduct shows and, and people notice it, and then they comment on it or they come up to you and ask you about it, that's the moment where your confession comes in. That's where you are able to say, this is who I am, this is what I believe. And that's when you, you get opportunity to talk about Christ with people, you know. So if you have a boldness with your confession, with everyone, and your conduct backs it up, then you can bring glory to God's kingdom in everything you do, you know. Um, making sure, but being public about it, that your confession is, you're, you're unashamed before it. everyone. There's no shame in your confession, you know. And that's, that's what makes things effective. So, um, yeah, okay. So I'd like to move on. We'll get into Hebrews 3, and then if there's additional comments after this, so we can go over those. So Hebrews 3, verse 12, we're going to get in a little bit into a little bit about how, as believers, how sin affects us uh, in, you know, it's very vast category. And then we'll get into specifics about um, what that means for applying it to this, this uh, topic. So Hebrews 3, verse 12 says, beware, brethren lest there be in any of you, he's talking to believers, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So we're actually warned. Think about it. He's talking to believers, and he says that we have to beware of having an evil heart of unbelief. Why would he tell believers to beware of having an evil heart of unbelief if we're already believing people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In other words, it's, there's a possibility of having an evil heart of unbelief, even while you're a believer, right? Yeah. 
<laughs> I just had that. <laughs> sure. Hey, no, like he, he makes this a warning because we've been there. It happens. And he talks about how it happens, right? Verse 13, exhort one another daily while it is still called today. So in other words, we need each other. If you want to avoid this, we need to exhort one another, help each other stay focused, right? Then he says, while it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Unbelief is a form of hardness of heart. Jesus talked about this a few different times. So what causes you to end up with an evil heart of unbelief begins with this deceitfulness of sin, which hardens you and eventually turns into unbelief. So here's how this works. Now, as believers, we know there's no condemnation if we walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. We know that we are not appointed to wrath. We know that Jesus has taken the chastisement for our peace. So God is not in the business of punishing us for our sins in this life because that's why Jesus was punished for us. Amen? We know that, right? So then why is sin dangerous? This is the big question. Because if you take on the really cheap grace perspective, that will tell you that, oh, you're just forgiven of everything anyway, so live however you want. You're forgiven, you're going to heaven. That's the extreme. The other extreme is under the law, which is I have to do everything perfectly, otherwise God won't approve of me. And I'm always in danger of going to hell no matter what I believe, so I have to. That would be the other extreme, right? The balance for the believer is this. Any sin that is in the life of a believer does not condemn him or her because of our faith, and because of the heart of repentance that goes with our faith, which is that we don't intend to do evil, right? That's the repentance. The faith in Jesus makes us justified. However, any sin that is in a believer's life, knowing it doesn't condemn you, is a danger because its deceitfulness leads to hardening your heart. And if a heart gets hardened enough, it can turn into an evil heart of unbelief and actually reverts back to what it started at and worse. And so this is why if you look at second Peter two, you guys don't have to turn there, but I'm just going to look it up real quick just because it's a, gives you an example of this. Um, second Peter two in verse 20 says, if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and savior, Jesus Christ, this is us. They are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. This can happen to believers. You are not immune to losing faith or salvation. And sin deceives you in precisely this way, where you begin to condone something because you go, oh, well, I'm forgiven anyway. You let it continue. Then what happens is it is so, it's in that it is deceitful and it hardens your heart sometimes without you even being aware of it. 
then if you let it continue without repentance, you can actually end up denying faith yourself with your works. So the Bible says in Titus chapter 1, like in verse 15, it says, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, for even their, their mind and conscience are defiled. For though they profess to know God in works, they deny him, being disobedient or abominable, disobedient, disqualified for every good work. Right? So, some people get to this point where you continue to profess to know God, but you deny him with your works. Denying him with your works, which is really a denial of Christ himself, can happen to a professing believer if you let sin continue long enough to harden your heart to the point of complete desensitivity to God. That can happen. And all sin that's tolerated in the life of a believer goes down that road. Anything that you tolerate. What you repent of, you're safe from in the sense of your, the condition of your heart. But whatever you allow to continue without repentance endangers you. Will God take away your salvation because you tolerate a sin? No. But you can bring yourself to the point of denying your own salvation because your heart gets hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Do we have a comment over here? He's holding the microphone? Ah, got it. Perfect. Thank you, Enoch. Good job. Yeah, question? Sophia has a question if you want to hand it to her. Hello. So was this person ever then like sealed with the Holy Spirit then? Or can the Holy Spirit leave this person if it was with them? Yeah, great question. So uh, short answer, yes. It is, it is very rare. We've talked about this a little bit before. It's very rare for when a person is born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, for the Spirit, because in order for them to, for the Spirit to leave them would mean they've also lost their salvation, right? So this is not extremely common. This passage, Hebrews 6, 2 Peter 2, that verse in Titus I just quoted, it happens, and that's why it's in the, in the Bible. The point is that one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, Jesus taught this in, in John 16, is to convict the world of sin. The first thing the Holy Spirit does in the list of the work of the Holy Spirit, according to, to Jesus, is to convict of sin. So when a person who's in the world is introduced to the gospel, it's preached to them, and their heart convicts them because of their sin. And they begin to turn to repentance. That's the Holy Spirit doing that. The first thing the Holy Spirit does when he's going to rest upon a person is convict of sin. John, John 16. Uh, you can just read through the chapter, you'll find it. John 16 is like, I think, in the second half of the chapter. Convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and, just, and judgment, it says. So... You'll notice that if you have, this is like a fruit of salvation. If a person is saved, one of the undeniable fruits that's going to be in their life is the conviction of sin. They will feel bad about doing wrong. And that's actually a really, really good sign. If you've got a believer who comes to you and they're in sin and they're remorseful about it and it's breaking their heart, that means they're in the right spot. If you've got a person and it doesn't break their heart at all, that's when it would be an even bigger problem. They might not even be saved. You've got a person with a broken heart as a believer. The Bible says that that's the sign the Holy Spirit's convicting them, right? So that's one of the first things the Holy Spirit does is convict of sin. Now, what happens is if you let sin to continue and you continue to ignore or drown out that voice of the Holy Spirit that's telling you to remain in repentance, that's what hardens your heart because you keep ignoring the convictions of the Holy Spirit. 
So basically what happens is the Holy Spirit gets to a point where if you keep ignoring him, he goes, I, my work is not even allowed in this person's life anymore because they're not responding to conviction. So therefore he has to withdraw. Now this doesn't happen commonly because it takes a quite a while for a person to get to a point as a believer where they sin enough to harden their heart to that, to that point. Cause the Holy spirit really, really, really does not want to leave people. He really doesn't want to. Cause he wants, the Bible says, according to Sophia, Ephesians one says he seals you for the day of redemption. He wants to lock you into God's kingdom and keep you there. So he's going to do everything in his power to make sure he keeps you there. But if you harden your heart enough by your own choice, he has to leave. And that's what Second Peter's talking about. Hebrews 6 talks about it. You come to the, this full knowledge of the truth and then deny it. There's no longer a sacrifice for sin. So Hebrews 10 verse 26. If we can get that up on the screen, actually, that'd be great. Hebrews 10 26 says that if we sin willfully after having come to the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Then it says, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries is verse 27. So, this is an example of you start with having knowledge of the truth. Your heart gets hardened and then you sin willfully after that knowledge. And what it ends with is fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversary. So you begin as having knowledge of the truth and become an adversary. If after knowledge you continue in sin. So what this means in order to actually fulfill this verse a person has to know the truth. So you come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You learn the gospel. You know something is wrong and you continue in it. Sin that you continue in that you know is wrong without repentance is the sin that hardens you. If you're ignorant of something, the Bible says there's, there's a measure of grace for ignorance, right? If you did not know your master's will and didn't do it. It's few stripes versus if you knew your master's will and did not do it, it's many stripes. So knowledge increases accountability, right? So if you come to knowledge of something being wrong and continue in it, it leads down that road of becoming an adversary of the gospel. So as a believer, now this isn't meant to make any of you fearful, okay? Unless we're talking about a healthy fear. Fearful, I mean, it's not meant to make you so terrified that you don't even know what to do with yourself, right? There should be a, a, there's a healthy godly fear in this, yes. But as believers today, this means two things. Number one, sin that's tolerated only leads to bad things. It hardens your heart. Now, hardening your heart is not just a matter of the danger of losing salvation. Hardening your heart makes it more difficult to maintain an intimacy with God because you become gradually more desensitized to him. It's harder for the Holy Spirit to speak to you. It's harder for you to have a clear mind, harder for you to understand the Bible. You're only making it worse for yourself in your relationship with God if, 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 if sin is condoned because it hardens you, right? And Jesus actually equated hard, a hardness of heart with a lack of understanding. So in Mark chapter 8, Jesus addressed this where he fed the 5,000 and then the 4,000, multiplied the loaves and fishes. They get into a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee, and they forgot to bring the leftovers from the feeding of the 5,000 into the boat. The disciples get hungry, 
And uh, Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the disciples said, oh, it's because we forgot bread. And they completely missed the point because they were just thinking about their stomachs. So then while they're in the boat, Jesus rebukes them and says they had a hardness of heart because they did not understand about the loaves. So when you don't have understanding of what God's word says, it's because of a hardness of heart. So the harder your heart gets, the harder it gets to understand. Mark 8. The microphone's behind you. Turn around and grab it. Yeah. So when I was younger, I was into the Lord. Then I got a hardness of heart. And I knew of Jesus. Mm Mm-hmm. But I in the Lord, but I tried to find ways to find he was fake. All right. Sure. Now, now I'm saved. At this point, or yeah. now you are, but back then you weren't. You weren't. Right. So, what's that mean? I mean, I don't, I don't understand this because you were, you're saying it's harder to get saved after you knew. Okay, what I'm saying, knowledge of the truth, meaning you were saved. I knew knowledge of the truth when I was not saved, though. You knew about it. But you, you, you hadn't come to, like Second Peter says, to come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? You had knowledge of him, but you hadn't come to the saving knowledge. Now you have the saving knowledge. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. So when you've come to the saving knowledge of the Lord then continue in sin and ignore the Holy Spirit, that's where the hardness as a believer begins. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Um, You can hand the microphone back to Enoch. So, really, (laughs) you don't want to continue in sin. There's a a second thing I'll get into in a moment. It leads you down the, the road where there's the endangerment of losing salvation. It takes a while to get there, but it does happen. Second, as your heart gets hardened, it gets harder to understand the word of God. In other words, it becomes more and more difficult to even function as a believer because you need the word to be a believer, right? And third, the Bible says that to believers, Jesus said this, that, and I mentioned this already, that a servant who did not know his master's will and did not do it is beaten with few stripes, but the servant who did know his master's will and did not do it is beaten with many. We are told, 1 Peter 4, I mentioned this last week, the time has come, talking about the the, the last days, for judgment to begin at the house of God. So, if you connect those two together, believers, the Bible says, will give account for their works when we get to heaven, whether good or bad. And those works, and whatever, whatever sin we continued in, or tolerated, if we, our faith was maintained, so you still make it to heaven, right? But we have to be corrected. That's the judgment that begins with the house of God when we get to heaven for those works. And that's why we give account for them. This is not you taking the punishment for your sin that Christ took on the cross. That's, that's done. That's finished. But that's why Hebrews says there isn't remaining a sacrifice for sin for whatever you continue in willfully after having come to knowledge of the truth. 
So if you continue in something in this life, but your faith still remains, you make it to heaven. There actually is a form of judgment. It's actually a correction. Hebrews 12 talks about that is needed to purify us through fire as we enter the kingdom. First Corinthians three talks about this. So it actually says we will go through fire. It's not going to hell, but it's, it's a purification that happens when we enter heaven or enter his eternal kingdom, right? This happens to everyone, believer and unbeliever. The more hardened your heart is because of sin that you tolerated, the more intense that purification will be, essentially. This is not God punishing you like Jesus was punished, okay? This is about their, okay, think about it this way. When we get to heaven, the spirit's already, the spirit's perfect now. Your mind is being renewed right now. But when we make it to that eternal kingdom, the Bible says all things have to be made new. You get a glorified body, your spirit being perfected. And what actually purifies you of your works, 1 Corinthians 3 says, is passing through fire. That's what the Bible says. So whatever shouldn't, whatever can't be in your life to exist as a citizen of God's kingdom eternally is burned off of you when you get into heaven, right? So the more you repent of things now, the easier that will be. Whatever you don't repent of and you keep in your life has to be purified out of you at some point. And if it's not going to happen now, it'll happen later. That's, that's what Jesus was talking about when he said the beaten with few or many stripes. He's not talking about we all get to heaven and then you get a certain number of whoopings. It's not, it's not what it is, okay? This is talking about the, the passing through fire when we enter eternity. It is more intense for the person who knew his master's will and did not do it. So sin, if it continues, you endanger your salvation if you let it continue long enough. You harm your own understanding and sensitivity to God, and you make the passing through fire when you get into God's kingdom eternally more intense. So you don't want to be in sin, <laughs> basically is the point of this. Yeah. So basically, you get to jump over the fire. Well, I miles of fire. <laughs> okay, what? <laughs> basically, you get to jump over the fire You're just a little bit. Well, I get to walk miles of fire. I don't think I'm understanding this. Oh, oh, okay, okay. So, okay, clarification, clarification. The Bible says all past time of ignorance God overlooked. So whatever you did before you knew Jesus and before you knew the truth, right? All that's washed away. Jesus took all that, right? But then as a believer... If you continue in a habit of sin without repentance, that's what we're corrected for when we, when we get into the next life, right? But the people who go to hell are the ones who there was no repentance, so therefore all of their sin is held against them. And if all of your sin is held against you without accepting Jesus, it takes an eternal suffering to pay for that sin. So it's a really, really serious deal. So as a believer, like, Thank God all that's gone. That's washed away, right? But we still need to receive his correction because that's repentance is how we stay uh, softened, softened, yeah. Will Jesus walk with us through the fire? Like the 1 Corinthians 3 past? I don't know. I don't know. 
I would think he would. Yeah. <laughs> like to comfort us through it? We don't even know what it looks like yet. We don't really know what it means, so, yeah. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I just think this is so crazy. I've been thinking about this for a while, and um, just the fact of, like, when, when people sit and they, and they bask in their sin, especially when they're, like, I would say newer in their faith, mm-hmm. I think that's why it's so important to, to emphasize, like, fellowship and, and gathering, because if you sit by yourself, who's going who's gonna to keep you liable? Held, held accountable, I would say. Uh, I don't know. I just, the, the fact that this is the, true conversation that came up is just yep, so crazy. That's true. Yeah. So as a believer, like we don't, we don't have to worry. Like the Bible says we should have no more consciousness of sins, which means the goal, Hebrews 10 says that in verse two, the worshipers once purified should have no more consciousness of sins. This means we should not think of sin as something that we always have to be thinking about and always have to be afraid of and this or that. Like it's not meant to turn into this frantic running around like a headless chicken. Okay. This is just meant to be a godly fear of knowing that as believers, having come to the knowledge of the truth, if we tolerate sin, what does that say about our faith? If we have died to sin, how shall we live any longer in it, Romans 6 says. So as soon as you start to tolerate sin, you're actually acting in an offense to the gospel. It's an insult to the Holy Spirit. And that's why it hardens your heart. And that's why it gets so dangerous. There's such a huge caution with this because of what it does to your heart. And that's the issue. Yeah. Well, when you were talking about this fire that will go through, the ones that have this sin in your life, but you make it because of your faith is intact right. still, mm-hmm. um, I would assume that it would be something like something so extremely sourful for you to know how you've grieved the Holy Spirit, how you've grieved God. I think that would be the fire. It would just be so intense. That'd probably be the worst part. Yeah. 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 Like, so Revelation, Jesus says, I will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Our eyes, it says. In order for Jesus to wipe away tears, there has to be some. Right? So one of the things that Jesus does to make all things new is wipe away every tear but there's going to be some crying, right? And that's, that's part of the deal. Like when we all get there, like it's not just pearly gates, ah, and you just, oh, well, there we are. No, no, it's not, it's not like that. It's like literally when, when Christ returns, it's, we, I, we, again, we don't know exactly what it, what it looks like, but there's, there's a fire we pass through that purifies us, that actually perfects us for his eternal kingdom. That's what it looks like. So before the pearly gates, it's, something else that we don't have a picture of right yeah oh you go first yeah sorry so i was thinking where it talks about tolerating sin um in the context of like our own selves do you have any like scripture or thoughts on what we are supposed to tolerate or not tolerate for other people acting in sin like how you how you deal with other there people. There would probably be a distinction like between believers and unbelievers, but like is off your top of your head, could you think of anything that addresses that or how to navigate through that? Yeah. Because I work with a lot of unbelievers and there is a lot of sin. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's for believers, but okay, I'll, I'll try to do this quickly. So 
The Bible says we have no business judging those who are outside because those who are outside, God judges. That's 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. What that tells us is that it is not our business to judge as in condemn a person who is an unbeliever because we are not their judge, God is. What that means is you can't go to an unbeliever and make yourself responsible as the church for telling them how they should live, what they should change, da-da-da-da, because they're not a believer yet anyway. They have no sense of accountability to you yet. God judges them. So our message to unbelievers is what Jesus said, which is, unless you repent, you will perish. So the only thing our job really is to say to unbelievers is, believe the gospel, obey the gospel, turn from your sin, and you will be saved. That's our message to unbelievers. If you go to an unbeliever, like practical example, let's say you go to a, you know, an abortion rally and you just get into an argument with a whole bunch of ladies about how abortion is against the word of God. They don't even believe the Bible to begin with. And you just get into an argument about how they shouldn't do this or do that. You're making yourself a judge to them when they're not accountable to you. That's not how you win people. It's not how you win unbelievers. With unbelievers, it's the simple gospel. And that's it. Then they come to faith. They come to faith, right? Then 1 Corinthians 5 says, those who are inside, we have the authority to judge. So people who are in the church, they are believers, and they're in sin, and it's apparent. It's obvious enough that you see it and you need to address it, right? The Bible says it is our responsibility as brothers and sisters to go to a sinning brother or sister and say, hey, this is wrong. You know better, right? We're accountable. We know the word of God. If they don't know the scripture about it, show them the scripture and say, hey, this is wrong, man. You should repent to this, right? Right, but that's the whole judge not lest you be judged. Matthew 7, Jesus said, the person who does that, in other words, the person who goes to a brother to confront sin has to have removed the plank from their own eye first. So in other words, you can't take a believer who's a hypocrite confronting another believer. You should have a person who's in repentance teaching another believer to repent. You shouldn't have a brother who's in sin telling another person to not sin when he's still got sin, right? So people who are in repentance should teach repentance to others. As believers, that's what you do. We're responsible for doing that. Unbelievers, you're not supposed to do that because the God is their judge. You are not. They, are not. they don't have accountability with you yet until they're in the church. Back here, yeah. Well, of course, um, one thing I have to say, but what about our judicial system? We're people who are on juries. Yes. Convict <laughs> yep. all the time. And that is, uh, of course, I guess that goes along with obeying the governing authorities unless it yep. goes against the yep. one of God's edicts. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, when I, I, I mean... And I've had jury duty before, but um, I know we, we do judge yeah. and um, yeah. outside, people outside of the church. Sure. Yep. So Romans what about that? Yeah, Romans 13 specifically addresses that and says yeah. that a person who is a governing authority to execute vengeance on the person who does evil is made a minister of God. Mm. So governing authorities, okay. governing authorities have the right from God to judge criminals or people who break human laws. However, human judges and juries are not a judge of a person's spiritual destiny, right? 
So what we're dealing with as the church is a person's spiritual destiny, right? So when we confront a person in sin, it's not so that they escape imprisonment. What they're escaping is hardness of heart, damnation. You know, that's what we're dealing with as the church. And that's why it's different. Uh, there's a difference between the governing authority and then the church's authority. Yes. Just on, on that subject of, you know, how to deal with believers versus un- unbelievers, et cetera. I think Proverbs 9 talks to that when it says, he who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself. He who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. I think what it's right. talking about there is a believer who is wise, knows God's truth, knows God's knowledge, maybe has erred, but is in, right. in that rebuke will become wiser. Yeah, become wiser. Yeah, but if you rebuke a scoffer, an unbeliever, you bring shame to yourself. Right, exactly. Great point. Great Proverbs. Over here. Proverbs 9, you said? What was the reference? 9, 7 through 9. Okay, yeah. Go for well, it. I was just going to say, like, to what extent, then, can you even say anything about it, then? Because, I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, my boss says, use the Lord's name in vain, like, a ridiculous amount of times throughout the day. And it's like, I want... Like I say some, doesn't even phase him. Just mm-hmm. doing it, but it's like, what do you what do you even do in that situation? Yeah, yeah. Or so sin like that. So let's say you share the gospel with him. So when you're sharing with an unbeliever, it's about their accountability with God, not with you, right? So if you go to an unbeliever and you try to be the judge and jury, and say you should not do this because I think it's wrong, you bring shame to yourself, like the proverb says. But when you're preaching the gospel and you say, hey. Just so you know, the Bible says taking the Lord's name in vain is punishable by death. God says that, right? So this isn't coming from me. This is, this is from the Bible, right? This is from God's law. So what does that mean for you? A question like that. It's, it's how you engage a person's thinking so that they start building an awareness of where they stand with God. And that's what it's about first, as far as a simple message goes with unbelievers. So you, you wouldn't, like, in that situation, I wouldn't go to an unbeliever who, let's say, just uses God's name in vain a lot and say, oh, I mean, you shouldn't do that because that offends me because I'm a Christian. No, it's not supposed to be an issue for me because I, I know I'm walking in the light. What it should be is, hey, I mean, where are you out with God? Like, hey, the, you know, Ten Commandments says it's taking the Lord's name in vain is, is wrong. That's called blasphemy, you know. What does that make you think of? And, and you make it about them thinking about God not an offense you have. That would be the difference. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Romans 2. Yeah. For Fernando? Just for all of us? Unbelievers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Read Romans 2 talks about how unbelievers have a conscience, basically, that judges them, the law that they have in their heart already. Did we have another hand that was up somewhere? Yeah. Yeah. So this happened in my own home. When my husband was an unbeliever, he would be using the Lord's name in vain. And it just like, it like put a knife in my heart every time I heard him say it. And I asked him a couple of different times, hey, would you please use some other word? And of course, he acquiesced to do that. And of course, it didn't happen. And so then the Lord just said, is it possible to use that opportunity every time I hear him speak that to pray for him, to intercede for him? And so that's what I did, if that helps at all. Sure. Use yeah. it as an opportunity to pray, pray for that person. Pray for people, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So 
Okay, so we got to get into what I originally said we would uh, finish out with, which is, okay, what, what's okay to do then? So as believers, we need to be serious about sin. I think we should all understand that by this point. Got to be serious about sin. Don't, don't play around with sin, okay? Now, here's where grace comes into play. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. So in context, he's not talking about, I can do whatever I want. That's not what he means when he says all things are lawful. In context, what he's talking about is within the boundaries of what grace allows as a believer, all things are lawful. So for example, as a Jew under the old covenant, you were bound by law not to eat a wide variety of unclean animals. That would be one example. Under grace, you're not under the law of Moses, which makes all things within the sphere of what God says is permissible, lawful. But not everything is helpful. This is the point, right? So this is not saying, oh, all things are lawful. I can sin as much as I want, right? That would be a misunderstanding of the verse. This is saying within the boundaries of the liberty that we have in Christ, all things are lawful, but not everything is helpful. And 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, not all things edify. So in 1 Corinthians 10 and in Romans 14, Paul teaches as an example, if me, if I believe, knowing I have freedom in Christ, not to keep the Sabbath. In other words, I don't have to observe Saturday as a day that I don't work. But then I have another believing brother who's in Christ who does believe he still should keep the Sabbath and not work on a Saturday. Paul says, don't let your good be spoken of as evil. So I have a good in my life, which is I have the liberty not having to observe the Sabbath. But if I turn that into an argument against the other believing brother who says that he should keep the Sabbath and I judge him for doing what he has freedom in Christ to do, which is to keep a Sabbath if he wants, then I turn something good into something evil. Or if it's the other side of the spectrum, which is I'm the person keeping the Sabbath and I got to try to tell another believer that they got to do it. I've now taken my liberty and turned it into something that is uh, spoken of as evil. He also talks about eating meat. One person says, I can eat this food. Another person says, I can't. If it turns into something that I judge my brother over, it's become evil. So in other words, what people see, what they think about, what you do can turn something good into something evil. So that's why he says not everything's helpful. Not everything edifies. There are things you have freedom to do as a believer that might be good for you, but it becomes not good or not helpful or not edifying, depending on whether it offends your brother, weakens their conscience or causes them to stumble, right? So whatever you're doing, the Bible says your, your liberty is actually judged by another man's conscience as a believer, which means what a person sees when you do something is more important than the doing of it itself in Christ. So it can be, we mentioned this a little bit last week, it can be something like alcohol, where if you've got a person who's you know recovering alcoholic, it's just... N- don't go hang out with them at a bar. Don't, it's probably not a good idea to invite them over to your house for dinner and then also be drinking next to them. Might not be a problem for you, but it is for them, right? So you would make your brother stumble, even though you have liberty to do something, 
and weaken their conscience, making something good evil. So that's why, and this is what Paul's teaching, all things are lawful within the boundaries of grace, which is what, what grace permits. But not everything's helpful and not everything edifies. So you have to ask yourself, what I'm doing might be okay for me, but how do other people see it? How do other people view it? You actually have to care about what other people think. Do we have a comment over here? Uh, yeah, I'll look that up for you. It's in 1 Corinthians. He was asking about the verse that says where you're judged by another man's conscience. Um, it's in chapter 10. Yep. I was going to say 1 Corinthians 8.13. Verse 29. 1 Corinthians um, 8.13 says... Going with the alcohol thing, therefore, food makes my brother stumble. I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So right. there's... Yes. Yep. Yep. So, what is okay to do? You've got what's been said so far. As long as you... And this is the second part of 1 Corinthians 6.12, where he says, I will not be brought under the power of any. So if we get that verse back up on the screen, 1 Corinthians 6.12, where it says, I will not be brought under the power of anything... That's the second principle. First principle is don't do something that'll make somebody else stumble, that'll make somebody offended, or that will weaken their conscience. That's first category of what you shouldn't do. Second category is whatever you're brought under the power of. Second Peter 2, I think it's in verse 11, says, by whomever a person is overcome, by him also he's brought into bondage. So Whatever overcomes you, you're in bondage to, which means you're no longer walking as a servant of righteousness any longer. So anything that holds you captive, you are not to do. And it should be conviction to turn from it. In other words, if there's an addiction, and if you don't call it an addiction, a habit that has enough control over you that it holds sway over your emotions. Where something that you're doing, maybe it's not like a, hourly, daily, weekly, whatever, but without it, it affects your security, happiness, or contentment. That would be something having power over you, right? So, of course, we're talking about addictions. That's a, that's a no-brainer. That's obvious. But something that controls your well-being or state of mind or your sanity has power over you, in which case it sh you shouldn't do it. So, whatever you do, let's say it's a hobby, Something that you have liberty in Christ to do, something you have liberty to enjoy, it's not wrong. And let's say, like, we'll use hockey as an example. I was actually just thinking about this the other day. I was like, oh, what if God told me that I couldn't play hockey anymore? And I went, oh, I wonder, I wonder what I would think if he said that, you know? What if he said I couldn't go on Thursday mornings? And I had this moment where I was like, oh, I wouldn't like that. And then I went, oh, okay, that probably means I got to fix something that I'm thinking, Right? So you, if you depend on something in order for you to stay happy and it's not Jesus, that's a warning sign. So Paul says, everything's lawful, but if I'm under the power of something, that's not good because we should only be under the power of Christ and be controlled and directed by the Spirit, right? So whatever you're doing, and this gets into Ecclesiastes, uh, let's actually go to that, and this is what we're going to end with here. Thank you guys for being patient. There's a lot of, a lot of scripture in this, but it's... Good stuff. So Ecclesiastes chapter 5. This is like one of the few verses in Ecclesiastes that's not depressing. Um, Ecclesiastes 5 verses 18 through 20. We'll read that momentarily. Whatever you do, 
do it as unto the Lord. You have liberty in Christ to enjoy what you want. If people don't stumble from it and you're not under the power of it, enjoy it. Say that again. If people aren't made to stumble by it and you're not under the power of it, enjoy it. Okay? So Ecclesiastes 5 verse 18 says, Here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him for it is his heritage. God wants you to have that joy, right? As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to rejoice, or excuse me, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. First Timothy six says, God gives us richly all things to enjoy. He wants you to enjoy the blessings he's given you. Then he says, he will not dwell unduly, on the days of his life, because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. King James Version says God keeps him from remembrance of the days of his life, referring to his past, because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. This means you enjoying what God has given you is part of what keeps your mind off of things that would make you sorrowful. So this is like a healthy way of an escape, if you will, right? So there are things that if we think about enough, it'll make us sad. We've all been through stuff that we either regret or that we wish hadn't happened in the past. And the joy of your heart keeps your mind busy so that you're not stuck on stuff you shouldn't be thinking about. This is not saying you have to have fun in order to have a healthy mind. Okay, that's not what this is talking about. It's saying one of the ways God accomplishes this for you is with the joy of your heart. And that joy is what he has given you to enjoy. The riches and wealth that you use to enjoy the fruit of your labor is part of how God adds joy to your life. So, of course, he wants you to enjoy life. He wants you to have fun. He wants you to do things that you'll enjoy. The only thing you got to be wary of is make sure you don't abuse or overindulge Make sure it doesn't turn to gluttony. The Bible says that people who are enemies of the cross, their God is their belly. Right? Philippians 3 says that. So if all you think about is what gratifies you, your God is your belly and you're an enemy of the cross. So don't go there. Right? Don't be gluttonous. Don't abuse. Don't overindulge. And the last thing is don't cause reproach or blasphemy through hypocrisy. The Bible says that you can cause good, Romans 14, to be spoken of as evil. You can cause the name of God to be slandered or insulted if you live as a professing Christian, as a hypocrite in the sight of unbelievers. So if you do something as a confessing believer that is wrong in the sight of unbelievers, that gives them ammunition that they use against the gospel. Don't blaspheme God's name. That's what that is, through hypocrisy. Don't overindulge or turn to gluttony. Make sure people don't stumble through what you're doing and make sure you're not under anything's power. Romans 14, 16 is what says, don't let your good be spoken of as evil, right? So if you keep these things in mind and pursue things that you can enjoy, it's good, it's glorifying to God's kingdom, make sure you maintain a boldness of your confession in the middle of all of it. Amen? Any questions or comments about any of this? Do you guys feel like you have a good handle on, okay, this is what I should and shouldn't do, and you can put action to it? Yeah? Okay. All right. 
I will close this out. If you guys want to give this morning, put your hand up, we'll get you an envelope. And then when we dismiss, you can put it in the buckets, silver buckets that are on either sides of the room. Please keep your hand up until you get an envelope. Thank you so much for your generosity. We appreciate it. Otherwise, you can use the link that's on the screen if you want to give electronically. Thank you again. We really appreciate it. I'm just going to pray to close us out. And then when we dismiss, you guys can stick around, hang out if you'd like to. Otherwise, you can get going if you need to. So, Father... Thank you for bringing us together for the wisdom of your word. Thank you for how it is impacting our lives. And I just pray for what was taught this morning, that in everything that we, would, that we do, that we would do it for your glory, that we would do it boldly professing your name in good conduct and good works that will cause other, other people to glorify your name. I pray that you would help us not to make a brother stumble, not to make a brother offended or weakened in conscience by anything that we do. Help us not to be under the power of anything, not to abuse and overindulge, and help us to be softened in heart, to not tolerate or condone sin. Help us to remove the plank from our eyes, Lord, because we all got stuff. So I pray that you would help us to repent. Help us to repent, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, intensify that conviction of sin in every heart in this room so that we would remove the plank from our eyes so that we would be able to effectively correct and judge and heal other brothers and sisters who need that correction from the Holy Spirit so that we would see the church purified, so that we'd see the church uh, through repentance being sanctified and looking like you, Lord Jesus, so that we'd be a bride prepared and ready for your return. And I just pray that you'd help us with all these things by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Lord Jesus, thank you for your blessing and for your love and your mercy and your grace. We receive it and we give thanks to you for all that you've done in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for listening. Go back. We'll have the recording up probably in a couple days or so if you want to listen to it again. Um, And we will see you next week. Thanks for being here.